Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And guys, I'm proud to say that we are working on our fifth season. That means that we have a hundred episodes under our belt. People that want to learn are listening and they're listening to what I say on a daily basis. And I'm going to keep trying to put it out there for you. And if you have any ideas or you have any stories that you want to tell, Big Bo Show at Yahoo.com is where I can be reached. Now, I may not get back with you immediately because I get a lot of emails every day, but I will get back with you. And if you have some stories or some concerns, we'll talk about it. I also would like to be able to call some of you on the phone and have conversations with you of different stories, if you don't mind being aired to the public. This is all in the process and up and coming, but I'm alone in this program and equipment is very expensive. But I'm going to stay in here and I'm going to keep plugging and saving my pennies. And there ain't nothing wrong with used equipment as long as it works, right? Because you see, I don't have sponsors. And I'm not internationally known. Just an old man with a microphone. I will fat check everything that I tell you. So I will give you only the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So let's slip into darkness and find out some truths about Anthony Burns. In 1854, Anthony Burns, a fugitive slave from Virginia, was arrested in Boston. His capture enraged black and white abolitionists. Two days after the arrest, a number of them attacked the federal courthouse with a battering ram, hoping to free Burns. But their attempt failed. Burns's defense lawyers were no more successful. After a brief trial, he was ordered returned to slavery. On June 2nd, thousands of people lined the streets of Boston. They hissed and shouted, shame, shame, as federal authorities escorted Anthony Burns to a ship waiting in the harbor. It took approximately 2,000 troops and cost $40,000 to maintain order and return the black man to bondage. No fugitive slave was ever captured in Massachusetts again. Now, Anthony Burns was not the first fugitive slave arrested in Boston and returned to his enslaver, but he was the last. More than any other city in the North, Boston was considered a haven for runaways. Its black community was especially strong and well-organized, and it was a city where black and white abolitionists were willing to act on their convictions. All this came into play in May 
1854. In an attempt to find a compromise that would save the Union, Congress had passed the Fugitive Slave Act in September of 1850. The new law gave slave owners or their agents the right to seize runaway slaves merely by presenting a sworn testimony proving ownership. So what union is Congress trying to save now by giving each state the ability to take away our Voting Rights Act? You see, friends, nothing changes only the rules that are set by whiteness. We are not enslaved anymore, but we're still playing their game of supremacy. But anyway, law enforcement officials throughout the North were required to arrest suspected fugitives and help return them to their masters. (laughs) That word, masters. Anyone who aided an escaped slave or interfered with his or her arrest was subject to fine and imprisonment. The law significantly increased anti-slavery sentiment among Northerners. Vigilant committees were formed to aid fugitive slaves, and some of the more militant abolitionists turned to civil disobedience. In the early spring of 1854, Anthony Burns escaped from Alexandria, Virginia, by hiding on a ship bound for the north. He arrived in Boston at the end of March. Before long, his owner learned of his whereabouts and came to reclaim him. Marshals arrested Burns and confined him to the federal courthouse. Word of the arrest spread quickly. Handbills announcing the kidnappers are here appeared all over the city. Slavery opponents hastily dispatched letters seeking support from abolitionists in other towns. The pioneer black lawyer Robert Morris and the white lawyer Richard Henry Dana, both active members of Boston Vigilance Committee, volunteered to defend Burns. Two days after the arrest, close to 5,000 abolitionists, most of them white, gathered at Faneuil Hall. A smaller group, mostly black men and women, met at the Tremont Temple. While the Faneuil Hall group debated strategy, those meeting at the church decided to act. They would march to the courthouse and free Burns. A small group of African Americans and the white minister, Thomas Wentworth Higgins, used a huge beam to create an opening in a door of the courthouse. A shot rang out. Half a dozen sheriff's deputies beat back two men who attempted to enter the building. Meanwhile, those meeting at Faneuil Hall had learned of the rescue and progress and several hundred headed to the courthouse. Police later reported that protesters threw bricks, fired pistols, and attacked another door with axes. It was all in vain. After the successful rescue, 
of Shadrach Menkins in 1851, federal authorities were better prepared. Order was restored, but only one deputy was shot dead. Several men wounded and 13 arrested. Burns remained in custody. A week of court hearings followed. Believing that resistance was of no use and that I shall fare worse if I do resist, Burns sealed his own fate by identifying Charles Stuttle as his owner. That simple statement was all it took for Stuttle to meet the criteria of the Fugitive Slave Act. The defense lawyers pressed the presiding judge to declare the law unconstitutional, but he refused. His decision returned Anthony Burns to slavery. That just shows you, my friends, sometimes when you do not know the law and do not know how the game is played, the words that come out of your own mouth will put you in harm's way. The week's events were widely covered in the northern and southern press. Some in the south recognized that victories such as this one would prove short-lived. Northerners' resolved increased when they saw that if slave owners' powers could reach Boston, it could reach anywhere. Determined that the federal law be upheld, President Franklin Pierce ordered troops to maintain order and insisted that the U.S. Navy ship transport Burns back to Virginia. Wow, that is some kind of escort back to slavery, is it not? On the day of Burns' departure, an estimated 50,000 people filled the streets between the federal courthouse and the Long Wharf. To keep them from interfering with the vile procession, as Richard Henry Dana called it, it took 1,500 Massachusetts militiamen, the entire Boston police force, 145 federal troops with cannons and 100 special deputies. Black crepe covered store and office windows and American flags hung upside down. Protesters suspended a coffin across State Street with the word Liberty painted on its side. Within nine months, the Reverend Leonard Grimes a minister of one of Boston's Black Baptist churches, traveled south and purchased Burns' freedom with $1,300 raised by the church. Burns' supporters published a book about the case and used the proceeds to help pay his expenses for two years' study at Oberlin College. He served first as pastor of a Black Baptist church in Indianapolis and then moved across the border to a small settlement in Canada, where he was pastor of another Baptist church. In poor health since the days of his enslavement, Anthony Burns died there on July 17, 1862, at the age of 28. And you know, my friends, the poor health probably came from the beatings and floggings that he 
received after he was returned to the South to break his spirit. But at least he did not die in slavery like so many of our ancestors did. Rest in peace, my brother. It has been my pleasure telling your story. And you are not forgotten. Well, my friends, that music tells me that it is once again that time. But before I leave, I would like to leave you with this message. Failure is merely the opportunity to start over. This time more intelligently. Until next time, my friends, it has been my honor.